Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Before we get started today, I want to tell you about a new show that I have. It's called Notes from the Field. Season one is coming out right now through November 2020. It's a show about travel, which is something a lot of us, including myself, really miss right now. And I'm hoping this show will resonate a bit with that desire to get back out there in the world. In Cognitive Revolution, my focus is on academics, writers, and scientists, but there's another kind of figure that I've always been drawn to. That's the traveler. And this is the person who goes somewhere unfamiliar, has a look around, and comes back to report to the rest of us what they saw. And at the intersection of the traveler and the intellectual is the anthropologist. So in a sort of informal way, that's the kind of spirit I intended for notes from the field. This week's episode is one of my favorites. It takes place in Istanbul. That comes out uh, Thursday, and you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. My guest today is Mazarin Banaji. Mazarin is a superstar of social psychology. She's based primarily in the Harvard Department of Psychology, where, is, where she is the Richard Clark Cabot Professor of Social Ethics. She has a tremendously interesting story. She was born in Secunderabad, India, in a Zoroastrian community. She discussed this a bit in a previous interview from a few years back with Krista Tippett, who has an excellent show called On Being. So we dig into that story and go a little deeper in it. Uh, so Mazarin's work is based on the idea of implicit bias. So this is the idea that a lot of where we hold our assumptions and prejudices isn't consciously accessible to us. And the main way she's explored this phenomenon over the course of her career is with one particular experimental setup called the Implicit Association Test, or IAT. The idea is that you, the participant, are shown a picture or another stimulus that you may have some sort of implicitly biased reaction toward. So again, this is something you wouldn't be consciously aware of. Uh, and the IAT teases out that bias by presenting you with another stimulus, maybe a word uh, or something like that, that either works with or against the grain of that bias. So then you measure the reaction times. And if you easily associate, associate the picture and the word, then your reaction time will be shorter. And if you don't, then it'll be longer. So for example, if you see a face from a certain racial group, then see something like CEO, you can may consistently uh, so if you do consistently take longer to respond to one ethnic group versus another then that implies the presence of an implicit bias so that's the basic idea at any rate it's a really fascinating line of research that has generated a ton of conversation in in the psychological literature and her work is great and honestly so is she i had a ton of fun talking to her and well, actually, uh, mostly all I did was listening because it was one of those times when someone has a great story to tell and all you have to do as the interviewer is show up and let them tell it. And I think you will really enjoy listening to it. So without further ado, here is Mazarin Banaji. So the first thing I want to talk about is your background growing up in a Zoroastrian community. This is something that you talked about in your interview with Krista from a few years back, but yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in that as a place to start to know what that was like, what your experience of it was, uh, how it shaped you, and just your general thoughts on it. 
so the 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 stereotype of of Zoroastrians when I was growing up in India at least was a benign one, somewhat positive. They're eccentric people. Uh, there were jokes about us, but not any active hostility. And I should say that first because India is a remarkable country in this way. Um, uh, we are not the only group. We came in the eighth or ninth, around the eighth or ninth century from Iran. Um, so as the Islamic invasions of were happening in Central Asia and masses of people were getting converted to Islam, a small group of people who um, were part of the Zoroastrian um, empire um, decided that they didn't want to give up their religion. And so they practiced it in secret and then every chance they got, they got away in little boats and tried to make a home somewhere else. And um, only a few succeeded, I'm assuming, and one of those that succeeded in finding a home, uh, besides dealing with being at sea and having few resources, um, was India. It was a king on the west coast of India, and the story is that uh, when my ancestors arrived on the west coast uh, of India, in Gujarat, um, that the local king met them and told them that, that they were already full with many people and they didn't think that they could take any more. And that because they couldn't speak the same language, um, the, the captain of this uh, little boat, I guess, um, asked for milk and sugar and um, put the sugar in the milk and explained that that would be a metaphor for how Parsis, or as we were called, people from uh, Paris or Persia, uh, would meld would 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 just meld in uh, to the society and make it sweeter, or at least that's the story. But you know, all over India, there have been people who've been coming for a long time, and for whom the country just says, "Okay, you can be here." Uh, Tibetan monks are a very good example. Um, uh, uh, they can't practice in China, um, and so they've made their home in India more recently. Um, and so have many, many other groups, including um, a group that I see when I visit my mother. Uh, there is an ashram in Pondicherry called um, the Aurobindo Ashram, and I won't go into the details of that, but there are about 5,000 white people uh, from Europe, from the US who live there. Um, and they asked the government, I think in the 50s or 60s for land, and they gave them massive amount of land and said, okay, make your home here. And they do spiritual things. Um, but that's, that's I would say that it was less that we were amazing and more that India was an amazing place that allowed us to, to settle and to operate largely um, as a separate entity, uh, enough that many of us until I think my generation managed to stay married to people inside the community and um, did not really, uh, the religion didn't basically die out. It's a strange group of people in one way, I would say. We, we have very uh, odd customs. Um, I'll give you a few of the, 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 the biggest hits on bizarre things about Zoroastrians. Um, we are patrilineal instead of matrilineal. Uh, being matrilineal at least makes sense because you always know who the mother is, but we're patrilineal. So only children of a Parsi or Zoroastrian father can be Zoroastrian. Um, that's being challenged, but that's one. Um, if you marry outside the community, you are excommunicated. So uh, that's a, another 
piece, at least for women. Um, a third is that the death rate is higher than the birth rate. And finally, um, I won't say we don't have sex, but we do not have children. <laughs> and so uh, as an example, just take me and my two siblings, none of us has kids. And while it may be considered a little bit odd in the, in the, in the general world that all three children in a family did not have kids, amongst Parsis, it's not that unusual. So all of that is to say that the community is dying um, very rapidly. When I was born, there were about 120,000, um, I think, in, in the world. Now there are maybe 80,000, something like that. Yeah, that's, that's tremendously fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what about your parents, though? I know you've, I've, I've heard you mention them before, and they sound like really interesting people. So what, what were the biggest impacts they had on you? Yeah, two, I mean, I, I really feel like very rarely do people who are that different in personality actually find themselves in a successful marriage. And, you know, um, they had their issues, but they were on opposite ends of every spectrum you could imagine. Um, my father was an intellectual. He was, uh, by personality, quiet, did not want to interact much with people, intense attachment to the family itself and to very few others outside the family, um, had a real disparity between what he wanted to do and loved to do and what he actually did. He was a taxman. He, he hated his life as a taxman because all he wanted to do was read literature and, you know, study art and um, write poetry. And, um, and, you know, we knew what to give him the day he retired. It was a little typewriter. <laughs> so, um, so he was, he was like that. He also came from a family that, I don't know why, they were very light-skinned. They um, light, had light-colored eyes, and most people would say that they were not Indian. Um, so they passed in a certain way. My father, I remember telling me that he was the only Indian kid in a school he went to of British kids uh, at St. Patrick's. So he would have had, um, he, and, and not surprisingly, he loved the West. Uh, he was an Anglophile, and especially um, America during the modernist period, which was his, his period. So at age, you know, six, I had to learn to spell big words like Hemingway and Faulkner. <laughs> and um, he actually gave me Old Man in the Sea to, to read when I was eight or nine, which ruined the book for me forever because I, I couldn't ever read it again and see it for what it was. I just remembered my horrified eight-year-old's experience when I read it. So I was, I was taken under his wing as a little, as a protege and um, to the exclusion of my siblings um, and partly because uh, I responded to it and partly because I was the oldest um, kid. But something, and my mother was almost in exactly the opposite. Oh, by the way, my father's family was therefore very much pro, even British. Uh, uh, my grandmother's house, I remember, had portraits of Queen Victoria. There was a, a drawing room where when visitors came, we would go and, you know, tea was served in, with, with such precision that it would put any British uh, uh, monarch to shame. Um, the, my mother's family was poor, um, dark skinned. Um, um, my grandfather on my maternal side 
was a trade unionist and he worked in a, in a cotton mill uh, and worked in the dungeons of the cotton mill and was known to be like a great mechanic and fixer of things and so would be awoken uh, in the middle of the night because the mill needed him to come in and fix something that our grandfather on that side, grandfather on dad's side was uh, completely different. A judge, a magistrate, as he was called, you know, would read Persian and, and had, a, had a very um, upper, upper class life. So my mother then was incredibly sociable, um, made friends with everybody and the house, the door in the house was open. My father would grumble about that, that there was, you know, he had no privacy and uh, people were constantly coming in, but he benefited from that uh, as much as he would grumble about it. My, my mother was uh, not only outgoing, but really believed in her children in a certain way. That was so important for those of us who came from a minority group where we certainly didn't believe in ourselves. When we were in school, we were so outnumbered that you just kind of wanted to be in a corner on the side and just hope that they would leave you alone. Um, uh, but my mother played a very important role in my child. I had very bad asthma and a bunch of uh, immune um, illnesses. And because the understanding of the disease was so poor and my mother was deeply religious, she sought religious cures for me. Someday I should write an essay on those experiences from the time I was you know, a toddler until I was about 16 when I put my foot down and said, no, I'm going to use an inhaler and I believe in science. <laughs> you know? um, but, but I was taken to religious people um, that, you know, I mean, it would, it would, it, it was a kind of sort of Lord of the Rings type of scene, you know, caves uh, with, with people who lived in those caves and I would be taken there because there was a Muslim cleric who was going to brush my body with peacock feathers and take away the asthma um, or stand in line for hours at 5 a.m. to have somebody insert a live fish into my mouth, into whose mouth had been uh, put a piece of flour with, um, with some magical herbs and then swallowing this fish was going to cure my asthma if I followed a strict diet of eating just one vegetable for the next three months. I mean, I can go on and on and on uh, about these, and each of them is more fantastical than the other. And, and so I couldn't go to school very much because they didn't know how to treat it. And as a result, I was home. Uh, my mother also started her own Montessori school in our house with her sister who lived um, nearby. And one of the things she did was to put me to work. So when I was five, I remember she would identify the most troublesome four-year-old and assign the four-year-old to me and say, teach this four-year-old, you know, how to write these words or whatever. And so when people say to me, you know, um, you're a good teacher, I, I often would say, well, I come from a family of teachers. My mother and all her sisters um, were teachers, uh, school teachers. But I also say, like, I've been at this, you know, for 55 years or 60 years now. I started teaching when I was five. Um, but what she did that was amazing is that in seventh grade, I was able to not attend school at all. And they were certain that if I took the final exam, that I would not pass. Um, and so my mother talked to the principal who said, you know, we don't know what to do. And 
my grandmother and father said, look, let's just pull her out of school. She can stay home. She can have a quiet life doing that. And then nobody's going to marry her because she has asthma. So we'll just have to figure something out. Uh, and so my mother fought that. Uh, and she said to the principal, my daughter has been studying at home and, you know, she will pass the exam. I didn't know any of this was happening. I, you know, blithely went in and took my seventh grade exam and passed. Um, and then the question wasn't raised for me, but left to anybody other than my mother, I would not be here. Uh, I would have been a kid who got pulled out in seventh grade. Uh, and then, of course, uh, she intervened again when it was time to go to college. And I just had not had a happy time in high school. And I had gotten involved with a group of girls who were not the most, I would say, studious. They were popular girls, but then I, they let me hang out with them. Um, but if they were studious, I would say some of them were very studious, but they, how shall I say, they were doing it in an almost mechanical way you know, for grades and getting good grades. And I just didn't feel like this was for me. So I just wanted to go do something else and get a job. <laughs> and, uh, and I had it all figured out. I was gonna go to um, a program for a year where I'd learn shorthand and typing and I would become a secretary. Um, and my mother let me do that, uh, which is itself astounding when everybody else was going off to college, she let me go away. Um, with very little money that they had, they supported me living in this uh, other place and uh, paying even some kind of a hefty-ish tuition. I don't know how they did it. But anyway, I came back and then I was all ready to take my job when she said, I think you should go to college. And, and I said, <laughs> most definitely not. Um, and the way she persuaded me to do it is to say, look, your sister is a year younger, as you know, she's very shy and uh, uh, always wants to follow what you do. And so why don't you go with her for a semester and then you can drop out and you'll have helped her settle in. Isn't starting till January, um, I'll spend the fall doing that. And I did, um, and then Something happened, I guess. <laughs> so I, I fell into the company of two women who were intellectuals. Um, we divorced ourselves from the rest of a campus that was not the most sort of, you know, um, it, was, it was a campus in those days where people mostly sat under trees and talked about politics in the world, but did not attend class. Um, so we actually attended class. We um, studied and we excelled in our exams. And I'll not say the rest, but um, these are just two examples of a mother who I disagreed with because I was so similar to her in personality. My mother was also um, a strong, um, I would say progressive. She was um, anti-British. She had fought in the Indian independence movement. She had been at rallies where Gandhi had spoken. Um, she had burned her British clothing um, to argue that the British should allow Indians to wear clothes that were made with Indian cotton, um, all of that. And so these two very different people, I think, produced for me an almost perfect environment in which I could develop my own mind. Now, 
I say this because about age eight, I remember having the first thoughts that God does not exist. And I remember that it was around that age my mother sent me uh, when she uh, shut down our house and, and moved. And it was in 1964, uh, when I was eight, that I began to do something that I would say uh, was a scientist's view of this. Uh, and what I did was I would write down how bad my asthma was each day, and I would write down how hard I prayed that day. <laughs> So I didn't know about a Pearson's correlation uh, that I could have done uh, and produced an R, but an eyeballing of those data began to tell me something. And I don't think I said a word to anybody about it. Nobody knew. It was sort of a latent belief that slowly made me skeptical of everything people would say. Um, you know, um, I remember my brother, um, one day came home and just couldn't walk um, and had this incredible pain in his legs. And um, I knew that the doctors were saying, we don't know what it is, but I knew it was not black magic, which is what my entire family believed. Uh, and black magic actually was practiced as a business in the town in which I grew up, meaning somebody would go to a part of a market where you would pay somebody to do bad things to somebody you didn't like. And then on the other side of the street were the people you would go to if you were the victim of black magic to pay them to take the black magic off. I mean, what a great uh, economic idea this is. Um, and it's just like a you know, good full closed system in which uh, both sides uh, got to do what they had to do and some people got rich on that. And I just remember getting angry for the first time when they wanted to uh, entertain that idea. But it wasn't until I was about 14 or so when um, it basically, I, I, I it, it came to a head uh, where my mother said, we're going to temple because it's our, it's our holiday to go to temple. Um, and, and I said, I didn't want to go. And she's, I don't know why she normally would say, okay. Uh, but this time she didn't, she put her foot down and she said, you must go. You're not doing anything with the family. You, don't go to movies when we go to movies you don't you just want to be home and reading and that's not good for you and you're coming to temple and i remember um i don't know what got into me but uh, i who have a hard time waking up early even today uh got up at five and left home before anybody could even uh before anybody knew i had left home and i went off to school and that was uh, your sort of coming out as an atheist that was my coming out as an atheist yeah and and I, I that you know it wasn't good when I came home. My mother did kind of silent treatment, and it was it was really, um, but it it faded. And they they blamed it on two cousins of mine who we had spent the summer with, both of whom had helped me uh, with this, no doubt. My my cousin Visti, who I'm still very close to. Um, gave me a bunch of Burton Russell to read. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a gateway drug for a lot of people to atheism. Everybody in the West's gateway of a certain generation, maybe not today, but it certainly was for me. But just that one essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, uh, was incredibly powerful. And it only gave me an internal confidence that I was on the right path. And But remember, this is a big break. I, I have, like many Indian girls and many women in general, I had a very strong attachment 
attachment, you know, the umbilical cord for women and their parents' ocean to your parents, and, and, and you don't want to leave them. And, and, and I'm sure I had all that. So that made this even more difficult because I didn't understand or have the language to say, I love you, but I'm, good. I'm not going to listen to you. Um, and, and, and from then on, um, you know, I've never wavered in, in certain things. And that's taught me how being young didn't mean that you were wrong, that you could challenge your parents on something that you believed in and they didn't seem to have good answers and they didn't, you didn't have to take everything they said seriously. So, so yes, and so I went away for the year, came back, went to college and then never stopped. But it was a windy road to Ohio State. It wasn't straightforward. I had some psychology. Uh, I was so imprinted on my father that I wanted to do everything he did. Um, and so obviously I was going to major in English literature and I would, if I did anything with it, it would be literature. But I think, again, this, this love of testing things, um, I think just made psychology feel, the psych courses feel a little bit more real. Now, when I say psych courses, I don't even think I had anything like introductory psychology. I never had any social psychology. Uh, I, I did psychophysics mostly because that's what that, they had a professor who knew that. And so I would, you know, do simple experiments and you know, putting like looking at just noticeable differences, making lots and lots of observations from people on studies that had been done by Fechner and Weber and uh, had not been done since, but there I was in the 70s redoing all of those experiments to see if I got the same uh, results and I did. Uh, and that was very exciting. Um, even though most of my classmates eyes would glaze over when we did those experiments or a little setting up a little memory drum in those days, it was literally like a drum and you would put a piece of paper and write handwrite all the words you wanted people to learn, and they would be shown one at a time as you cranked the drum <laughs> and showed them each word for whatever your stopwatch said was the time. Um, I think maybe all that psychophysics was a precursor of sorts, uh, just telling you that you should have been at Harvard all along, and that's where that you would end up one day. <laughs> you know, I, you remember the equipment on the eighth floor, uh, the Schachter floor if you know it's 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 all of that equipment that was used i guess in the turn of the century because william james who had been instrumental in creating the field of psychology at harvard was also deeply skeptical and he had some very abusive term for for them you know the chronometer type people or whatever he called them who uh he did not understand that uh he he thought uh, psychology meant stream of consciousness thinking in the grandest scale of the kind he was able to do. Um, and so maybe you're right. And it's some kind of um, a love. And, and, you know, I will say that maybe this is, I've never thought of it until today, that maybe this is my maternal grandfather's skill, but I loved opening up every toy I was given. And, you know, my entire family knows this, that they would say, she'll break it. Um, and I thought, what do you mean break it? Don't you want to know the inside? Like there was this ugly orange tin tortoise that, you know, you keyed up and it moved. And, um, and I just had to open it up to see like what, what inside its stomach was making it move. And this poor thing just came apart and I gave my brother the shell and my sister the legs and I just loved the mechanism. Uh, 
And that, I think, is another um, little piece of information about wanting to know what's inside of things and not, not, not assuming that what's the outside is the inside. Okay, so here is a specific question about your timeline, which is that you did your undergrad and master's in Hyderabad. And then I believe you did a, a second master's in New Delhi. I did not get a degree, but I in Delhi. And that was a very, I mean, I think that was a pivotal moment for me. Because, you know, up So, until- yeah, I want to hear about that and specifically going from there to the Ohio State University. Yeah. That seems yeah. like a big jump. Did it feel like a big jump? Yes and no. And I will tell you, so I'm doing psychophysics. I'm continuing to do more psychophysics and taking statistics classes and did this master's degree, um, which which was, you know, it was wonderful sort of general psychology, but still no social psychology. Um, And then, of course, um, I go to the United States uh, towards the end of that first master's thesis because things just were sounding pretty exciting, but I didn't know in what or what what it was. And two things came together. Uh, I was going home from uh, Delhi to uh, my my family. This is a 1,200-mile trip, and you did it on a train, and it took three days at the time to to get home on a train, uh, or at least two nights. Um, And the Indian railway system is fascinating uh, because everybody at the time, there was nothing like taking an airplane. I mean, maybe some incredibly few wealthy, wealthy people uh, flew by air, but everybody took the train and trains had uh, classes, you know, there was the third class in which you just got a seat and a second class where you got a berth and a first class where you would get air conditioning or whatever. And so kids like me always traveled in third class. And for, you know, less than $5, you could make this trip, uh, which was an amazing deal, subsidized, obviously, by the government. Um, but train stations were full of life because, you know, you would be on it for days. And so when you got to a major junction, uh, you got off the train and the platform was a whole market. Um, and there were people selling all kinds of things, food and, and so on. And it would be very active because they would know that you'd be there only for a half hour or 15 minutes or whatever the stop was. So there'd be all this bothering going on <laughs> very rapidly. And I ended up um, in a shop um, that was a bookstore and um, I noticed, because I was interested in psychology, uh, that there were these fat books that said the handbook of social psychology. And there were five of them, and I thought they were copies of each other, but they were not. It was a five volume set. It was the 1968 handbook of social psychology by, um, um, edited by uh, Lindsay and Aronson, um, Elliot Aronson being uh, the Aronson. And I remember, you know, even though my my Hindi isn't as fluent as it should be, the one thing I can do in Hindi really well is bargain, <laughs> because that's all, all I've mostly done in Hindi. Is to, and so I tried to bargain this guy down from what was already a very low price. But I said, I remember saying to him, look at how much dust there is on these books. <laughs> you know, you're not going to sell them. And so he basically let me take them for about a dollar a book. And uh, I got on the train thinking, this is crazy. My parents are going to say, we don't have any place in the house for these books. Um, and I read the first chapter by Aronson, which was on the methods of social psychology. 
And I was just, I mean, mesmerized by this because it seemed like all my psychophysics and wanting to do experiments was still a part of it. But what they were doing experiments on was something I could not imagine anybody ever doing an experiment on. And just the idea of doing a study in cognitive dissonance, and I just remember just neurons just, you know, um, flying all over the place when I read a description of Festinger's uh, basic dissonance study in which you make people lie, uh, and then they like the, the thing they did even more um, because they had lied. And I, 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 just, I just knew inside of me somehow that I want to do this, but I have no idea where and how. And that's when the second piece of this happened, which is that when I got home to India, I met up with some of my older friends from, from, from that previous college, and they were all finishing their engineering degrees and going off to the US. And so I said to them, you know, what does it take? What, what, what do you do if you want to go to the US? Um, and they said, well, you know, for engineers, it's very straightforward. The first person in our class will apply uh, to MIT, the second will apply to Caltech, the third to Stanford, and that's where we'll all go. Uh, and, and I said, but I want to do psychology. And even like, I don't think in those days, the word psychology as a field was uttered much. And so they looked perplexed, but they knew that's what I had been studying. And they said, well, we don't know about psychology, but we've heard a rumor that in the US, there are schools with the word state in it. And if the school has the word state in its name, they apparently take anybody. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. So I went to the library, pulled out a book called, you know, American Universities. And I started to flip the pages. And every time I would come to a page with the word state in the name of the school, I would write down the address of the admissions office. And then I wrote, I think, like 30 aerograms <laughs> letters that um, and asked for the admission material from Michigan State and Kansas State and Iowa State and Ohio State and so on and applied not knowing a thing and not realizing that, you know, if you get decent GRE scores, you'll get into a lot of places. And I did. And I chose Ohio State because of us, again, such a simple thing that should have had no bearing on my choice. And this I want to tell young people that, you know, these accidents are just things to assume. So Tom Ostrom, who was a professor at Ohio State, instead of just sending me a formal letter, he had stuck the college newspaper from that day in the packet and on it he had scribbled, I hope you will join us in the fall. That did it. I thought, yeah, it's obvious where I should go. It's a school with the word state in it. They obviously will take anybody and, uh, and then they're being even nice to me. So that's where I'm going to go. Not realizing that it wasn't the greatest university in the world, but it had the world's most amazing social psychology group, a group of four men, um, each more outstanding than the other, Bib Latine uh, of the Latine and Darley um, work on bystander non-intervention, Tim Brock, um, quite interesting personality, um, had studied at Yale and um, was doing work on um, whether you would aggress more against people you didn't like if, they, if you knew they were sitting in uh, an aggression machine, which is what had been done before. And he created something called the pleasure machine. <laughs> would you 
stimulate somebody more if they were the same race or whatever. So he was doing stuff like that and he cared about consumer behavior and persuasion. Uh, Tom Ostrom, uh, who was at the time very excited about a new thing called social cognition, uh, the coming together of these two areas. Um, and Tony Greenwald, who already had been mostly a cognitive psychologist, you know, and floated around and had come from Harvard. And this is another point that I want to make. There I was in a school with the word state in it, but my teachers were from Yale and Harvard. And in fact, I should mention that Tony Greenwald's advisor was Gordon Alport, uh, who at the time was at Harvard. And the chair I have today, uh, the Cabot Professor of Social Ethics chair, was a chair created for Gordon Alport. Now, I was not doing anything on prejudice or anything on attitudes while I was there. Got my copy right here. And that's actually that's actually the uh, one of the early editions because I can tell from the cover that that's an older edition. So think about think about social class here. You know, here's this kid who knows nothing, but somehow maybe because of my social class within India, I end up even at Ohio State in the lab of somebody who had all of these connections and I found Tony and Tony's mind to be liking the same things I did without being able to have the words to explain it. And then sure enough, you know, where did I land after um, everything? At Yale first, where he had been an undergraduate and then at Harvard, um, where he had been a graduate student and where my intellectual grandfather uh, sat. And, and in between Gordon Alport and me, there was one other professor, Herb Kelman, who was a very unusual social psychologist who did lots of work on attitude change in the very traditional sense, but who also spent three months of the year in the summer working on Arab-Israeli peace. And when he retired um, and this position at Harvard became available and they recruited me, I had no idea about all of these connections until I arrived and he said to me, this chair, was upholstered for you and you can now have it. And I said, oh good, is it your chair? And he said, no, it's Gordon's chair. Um, so just think about uh, all of this, that while it seems improbable that a person, a girl who almost didn't finish seventh grade um, ends, up, ends up here, but also think about all the amazing advantages of that mother pushing her to not drop out of a father who gave her a love of the printed page from a very early age, um, of schools in India that, you know, just without, I mean, I really don't have favorite teachers, you know, it was mostly my peers that I learned from. And they were amazing group people. Uh, and then at Ohio State where, you know, I would have flunked out at Harvard because at Harvard, if I had come there, they would have said, what do you want to work on? You know, find a project, do something. In those days, there was no training program. But at Ohio State, there was. And even though it might have been onerous for an American student who already knew a lot, for me, it was heaven. I had to take four real courses, a, a quarter. So that's 12 courses uh, every year outside of things like brown bags and, you know, things like that. So four real courses every quarter. And I had to take a course on attitude theory and attitude measurement and attitude application. I had to take six statistics courses. I had to take 
10 cognitive courses if I wanted to have a minor. These are, you know, so this happened for two full years. And I think I actually, for the first time, felt I was getting educated, that these were people who didn't care about does she have a good idea or not. I would, have, I would not have had one. Uh, but they took, took the task of training very seriously. And they put you through a grind. And if you came out of this unscathed or, or willing to be even more scathed, they, they, would, they, would, they would be very happy with you. Um, in fact, that it was a hostile work environment. Um, and this is where I have trouble because it was that hostile work environment that actually gave me my best education. And I'm not saying that you cannot give people a good education uh, without a hostile work environment at all. I hope I don't have one and that I'm still teaching. But in that day and time, it was considered really okay to push people to the brink where they would mentally fall apart and then see if they could pick up and, and stay in the program. And the assumption was five people would come and one would graduate. And in my year, that was the case. A second one in my class did graduate, but many, many years later, but the other three did, did drop out or flunked out. Um, so it was a very, um, it was a tough, rough time in my life. And what I loved was then the transition to University of Washington as a postdoc. So you should know that in those days, if you did a postdoc, you were a complete loser. Like it was just clear that if you if you got to year five, first of all, you should graduate in four years and get a job. But if you took a fifth year, you should most definitely get a job. And if you did not get a job, boy, you know, you probably weren't ever going to get a job. And so I did not get a job. And I scampered around and said, you know, I'd like to do a postdoc maybe. <laughs> and had a hugely supportive spouse uh, by that time who was saying, go anywhere you have to go and we'll make it work. He was in New York at IBM's Watson uh, Research Labs, which was IBM's think tank. And we had met in Ohio where he was, he had just, he'd arrived to teach in computer science and the business school. He had worked with Herb Simon at Carnegie Mellon. So he was um, sort of a, a cognitive psychologist, although all his work was um, using sort of single subjects and their thoughts as protocols um, on which computer programs would be developed to understand how a fifth grader learns algebra or whatever it was. So, so by that time, I was, I think, personally fairly confident that, that I could go anywhere uh, because my spouse was going to make that happen. But again, think about how I chose. I got a few different postdocs um, and I chose one to work with Claude Steele and Elizabeth Loftus. And I do not believe I thought it's a dark-skinned man and a woman. I did not think that at all. I thought, boy, their work seems really interesting. But I have to say that I probably went there because of their demographics. And that is both troubling to me because I don't believe choices should be made based on that. But it tells me that unless we understand our biases and our preferences for people who are similar to us. We may make choices that may not be good for us. Now, in my case, it turned out to be, you know, the highest echelon of heaven to be with those two. They were totally different from the Ohio State crowd. They were welcoming. They were friendly. They didn't make you feel threatened. They, every little, I remember being in Beth's office, having 
written the first draft of a chapter that she had asked me to join her on, which nobody had ever asked me to do before. Um, and when I when I went into her office, she said, "Oh, this you you've written such a lovely chapter," and I burst into tears <laughs> because I'd never heard anything like that before. I had never been told that. My understanding is that's not how Tony Greenwald responded to no, your drafts. Tony no, Tony would have said, um, I love, love Tony, uh, but I think so much of him is captured by a good quality, which is captured by his editing, a fortune cookie um, proverb or comment that he got. The fortune cookie uh, slip said, there is nothing which cannot be improved. And Tony pulled out his red ink pen and crossed out which and said that. There is nothing that cannot be improved. And that was him. Um, there is nothing that cannot be improved. And, and by the end of graduate school, I had figured something out. I had taken everything he said incredibly personally. And um, I think I, I had been devastated. But by, by watching him behave that way with his own children and his own self. Uh, I remember seeing a really red marked paper on his desk and I thought, oh, oh, who is that poor person who is going to get that? And I glanced to see who I'm going to have to sympathize with today. And it turned out it was a grant proposal he was writing. And that was his editing of his own work. And it had lots of tough comments on it, you know. So, so um, that gave me a little bit of a, a sense that maybe I should. I always told him that if not for my mother giving me incredibly high self-esteem, <laughs> I wouldn't have made it. Um, anyway, all that to say that I got to Washington and they were just what you would today call inclusive. <laughs> um, you weren't just there. You were there in a way where you were supported and encouraged and made to feel like who cares about whether you're going to do great work? The important thing is we're having fun doing science. And there were models of great research there at the time, including people I worked with that won't even really show up. Uh, Buzz Hunt was a cognitive psychologist with whom I wrote a paper on the Warfian hypothesis. Beth, with whom I wrote a paper. Claude Steele, with whom I did research on the effects of alcohol on, on our self-concept and how under the influence of alcohol, which I would do the experiments in, a, in an alcohol in a bar lab that existed at University of Washington, where you would come in and sit at a bar and we would mix drinks and give you placebos or the real thing and then tasks to do. And um, we got tons of subjects. My favorite sort of memory is of a very large football player who came to be in my study um, and I had given him a placebo. Um, and um, I didn't know that at the time because to be blind, uh, another assistant would mix the drink. And uh, I, I was the mix, mixer of the drink. Somebody else would present it so that the interaction would not be contaminated by knowledge of what they were getting. Um, but as he was leaving, he said, my head is spinning. Uh, I, I, you know, I would say you can, you know, you were not given any alcohol, so you, you can walk home but he just refused to believe that he hadn't gotten any alcohol. And that was also an amazing experience of looking at the power of a placebo um, and so on. And so I did all of that. And then um, in my first year of the postdoc, I thought maybe I should apply for a few jobs, even though I had the second year in hand. And 
I applied for a few jobs that were near where my husband Bosker was working. Um, so he was in Westchester County outside New York. So I applied for jobs at CUNY and NYU and places like that. Um, there was a job at Yale. And I remember discussing it with Tony and he said, oh, it's not for you. Um, and he said, you know, I recommended so-and-so, another person in our program because she does attitudes work and you don't do that. Um, and Yale is a very good attitudes program. And this is an amazing example of a bias that we think we know who fits where. And I worry about this in teachers and all of us, when somebody's put in our care, to not make up your mind about all of the options that they should seek and not be constrained by your view of where they ought to go uh, is very hard to do because you've known these people. Tony knew me for you know five years plus the sixth year I'd been in. So, so I'm sure he was doing this out of really of goodwill and doing the right thing for, and, and what I loved about him is that he didn't say, you know, my PhD student should get that job. He was picking somebody else's student and promoting them for that job because he believed that they were the right person for the Yale position. And I didn't apply because I really didn't think that Yale would want a, you know, Big Ten, Pac-10 person. After all, my office had been under the bleachers of the Ohio State football stadium. So um, I just didn't even think that. Um, I guess I thought another school with the word state in it, it would be a very good fit uh, for me. And then um, I talked to my husband about this. Um, he said I should apply. I decided not to apply. And then I got a call from Yale um, that said, we have your CV, but no accompanying materials like letters, no, no statement, nothing. Are you interested in this position? And I had to make up some story that yes, I was interested. And then I called my spouse from Seattle and I said, you rascal, did you mail my CV in? And he said, yeah, don't you, don't you want to live together? <laughs> and I got to Yale. Um, my CV wasn't particularly strong, um, but they had interviewed eight people. <laughs> and had not liked anybody. And they were going to shut the search down when they found this CV, but it had no letters. So very quickly, I got the letters done. It was usually jobs in those days were all resolved by February. And I remember this was March 3rd and uh, I went out, I interviewed. I just, I have to say, I felt at home in some way that can only be described as an affinity for a liberal arts environment. Up until then, I had been at you know big state schools that gave me so many resources of a kind that I would never have had. I would not have made it in any of those schools myself. But as a place to work, um, it was just, it was like, um, it fit like a glove. Uh, and I got into teaching and uh, doing research and, you know, uh, and then I can tell you about that part of it because it too is improbable. I didn't get to Yale with, any sense that I was going to study implicit cognition. Okay, so let me try and get the timeline here. Uh, but in 1995, you and Tony Greenwald published what was essentially a theory paper, I believe in Psych Review, that was essentially outlining mm -hmm. the basic ideas of implicit bias. And then a couple of years later, Tony Greenwald and a couple of colleagues published the official association ta implicit association yep. task. And uh, so, yeah, I guess I'm curious, what did that time look like for you? 
what what were the sort of what was the genesis of, of those ideas and yeah how did that how did that all play out for you so ohio state had required a major minor and a minor minor so social psychology was your main field but you have had to have two minors um and my major minor was cognitive psychology and my minor minor was statistics and because Ohio State had a quantitative psychology program. Um, so it wasn't like one statistician in the whole department. There were like 10 of them. Um, so I felt very comfortable in cognitive courses as social. And when I got to um, Yale, I met a man by the name of Bob Crowder. Um, he was, he studied auditory cognition. And he was an eccentric, uh, amazing man. Um, and he had been on sabbatical. And my everything I had done in graduate school, by the way, had uh, had the DV was always a memory DV. So the dependent variable measure for every study I'd ever done was free recall, cued recall, recognition. Um, not no social behavior <laughs> was uh, ever ever studied. Um, what I varied were things that may have been a little different than what a cognitive psychologist at the time would do. I would look at the effects of self or affect um, things like that on memory. But the, so Bob said to me, I've been on sabbatical for this past year. I think he had been at Stanford and he came back and he said, while I was gone, it looks like my colleagues hired me uh, a, a, a real colleague uh, who studies memory. So he said, Friday afternoon, see you at 12. And I went and it was a journal club on memory. Um, and every week we would meet uh, and summarize. One person would describe a single paper in depth. This is what the question was. This is how they went about doing it. And we would have to, it was sort of like a little um, um, thing to, to reach for is to give a person all of the data from the paper and the critical information on two sides of a single page. <laughs> so uh, you would you know, have to do the title and abstract, and then you would pick from the article little strips of words and stuff so that anybody could take that piece of paper and should be able to replicate that study. <laughs> okay? And so it was always this running joke about you know, who gave extra information that wasn't needed or did not provide the right information. But we were a small club of mostly students and then Bob and me. Uh, and I was learning like a student was because um, uh, it, this was there was so much more to, to memory than I knew. And in that in that um, so at this time, I'm not I never had the thought of implicit cognition. I knew it existed. And in my study of memory, I was fascinated by that the tests done, especially in your part of the world, in, in Cambridge mostly, I think, and uh, maybe less at Oxford, but, but on uh, people, on amnesic patients, on patients who showed no evidence of conscious recall or recognition, but who seemed to have much more intact, implicit forms of memory. So if you said the word motel to them later when you gave them the word M and said, finish it with a five-letter word, they were more likely to complete it with motel. But if you said, do you remember my telling you that word, they would have no recollection. Oh, just those kinds of tests, but also uh, really fun observations uh, that that had happened from people uh, like Claparet, the, the, the French doctor who many uh, you know, centuries before that 
would prick the hand of an amnesic patient when he would meet them every morning and discover that when he came back to say hello to them, they had no memory of who he was, but they wouldn't extend their hand. And when asked, they would make up some story, like, you know, they would confabulate. They would say, I, I, don't, I don't like you or something like that. Um, so this was just fascinating uh, to me. And I picked as a result, I think, a paper to present in Memory Lunch um, that was by Larry Jacoby on the false fame effect. And the false fame effect was uh, just a very nice demonstration of um, a more general principle that it's not just amnesic patients who have these forms of memory that seem different from each other, the one that relies on conscious recollection, the other that relies on some more implicit uh, system that keeps the data there, even if those data are not available to awareness and to uh, conscious control over the data. And so the study was very simple and it was really cute. And the title was appealing. It said, Becoming Famous Overnight. Okay, that was the, the title and then some extension that I can't remember. But basically you did the following. He brought people into the lab, showed them names of people uh, from a phone book. Uh, I'll pick the one he uh, mentioned, Sebastian Weisdorf was a name from a phone book. This is not a famous person, it's just a name from a phone book. So he picks these names, he has people come in and do just some irrelevant exercise on them. You know, uh, I think the exercise was just rate this name on how easy it is to pronounce it on a five point scale. Then they go away, then two days later they come back. And now they get an extended list of names that are of three kinds. They get all those names from the phone book that they had read before. They get a new set of names from the phone book that they had never seen before. Um, and then a list of names of famous people, you know, actors and musicians and political figures who about 80% of people would recognize. So now you've got this mixed up list that has famous names, not famous names that are old, not famous names that are new. And he presents these in a random order and he asks each person to do something very simple. Is this the name of a famous person? Yes or no. And what he discovered, because he's a genius experimentalist, is exactly as he had predicted. He had predicted that an old, not famous name that you saw before would have a lingering perceptual familiarity. You saw Sebastian Weisdorf two days ago. Hmm, you don't remember whether you saw it or not, because why would you remember out of your list of a conceptual fluency, that word, the W, the D, F, together, or something like that. And he argued that under that condition of uncertainty, where you did not know if you saw the name or if this name feels familiar because it's the name of a famous person, that you'd be more likely to make a systematic error and the error would be to identify Simon Weisdorf as famous, even though Simon Weisdorf is not famous, and that you would not do that if the name Simon Weisdorf showed up in the control condition. Really lovely and simple study, right? I presented and everybody got all excited about it, and I think people came up with, what would happen if this or that? So I go back to my office, and in those days, if you wanted to get in touch with the author, you would have the physical address, um, at the bottom of in the at the bottom of the article and we used to have pre-printed postcards it would say dear blank i would like a copy of your manuscript blank that appeared in blank would you please mail me a copy of your article i will be very grateful and then you would sign your name and you would put that postcard in the mail and then you know 90 percent of the time you would get something back <laughs> 
And I have never waited for a response back as much as I did that. And indeed, arrived a fat manila folder uh, from Larry Jacoby um, telling me that these were all the materials he had used and lists of names, what he had, how he had coded it, just really helpful. And as I go through the names, I notice that they're almost all, I mean, like close to 100% male names. And so I remember now getting excited enough that I think I called him. I, I have a memory. I don't know if I wrote him or if I called him, but I have a memory of calling him. Um, and I said, um, I joke that I said, Dr. Jacoby, you only sent me half your stimuli. <laughs> uh, where are the other half? Uh, I doubt I said that. <laughs> that would have been too bold a <laughs> thing to say. But I did say there are no women's names. Like, should I assume you didn't use and he said, of course, I didn't use women. And women are not famous. He just said that out. And as he said that, I remember, and again, think about it. I remember thinking, oh, yeah, he's so right. It would really mess up the study if you had to find women's names because then you'd have to match for fame. And it just would be messy. So I hung up saying thank you. But here is the other interesting thing. While I agreed with him, I didn't do the experiment that way. I actually took three summer months to design the experiment with names of famous women, equal numbers of famous men and famous women. And Tony had not been interested in this topic uh, at the time um, until I think I came along and we did this work. He had, I think he would have almost frowned on any work that looked at bias of this kind. That would have been seen as silly work. That would have been seen as you're interested in a variable gender that you cannot manipulate? What kind of experimentalist are you? So it was frowned on in a very, very clear way. But I wasn't even doing it with that in mind. I was just doing it to see if I could replicate. I, I actually wasn't looking for a gender difference. I just assumed that there would be no gender difference. And I would have done the study with a full set of names. But then for a student listening to this, the question is why? Why did I delay doing the experiment by three months? so that I could go around finding all the right names. And I still have the sheets on which I uh, wrote some of those names. And I have my little notebook in which all the hand done um, analyses are on the false fame study. I can, I can try and send you at least a couple of those pages that are really cool to look at now. Um, anyway, I did the study, expected to just replicate Jacoby. Um, and in the first experiment I did, um, didn't replicate. Um, I used to run my own subjects in those days. I didn't have any students who wanted to work with me. Uh, they would come to Yale and immediately go off to all the famous people, Bob Abelson, Bill McGuire, Judy Roden. Uh, nobody uh, would even think to work with me. And so I would run my own subjects. And so after the first experiment, I thought I better replicate this because, uh, and, and you know, I would say that we were, Greenwall Lab was ahead in the sense that replication was always a very big part of what we did. In those days, you would do a study like this and publish it, um, even in JPSP, one, one study was, was enough. But our lab was um, both lucky that our tasks were tasks that subjects could do fast, we could bring them into the lab, and Ohio State had 50,000 undergraduates, so getting subjects was not a problem. When I went to Yale, it became a real problem because the subject pool was really small. And sometimes I do think that the idea of the web became attractive because I just knew that there's no way I could do all the studies I wanted to. I remember going to a conference, having an idea, and then coming back and a week later, 
uh, a colleague from Purdue wrote to me and said, I did the study that you uh, mentioned would be interesting. And I had not even had a chance to think about it, but he had been able to go back to Purdue and in four days he had the sample size to do it. So back to the Jacobi experiment. I was certain that whatever I observed in the first study was a blip, that um, the gender of the name should not matter, and it did. So let me explain what the result of the first study was. I replicated the Jacobi effect for male names, names that had been seen the day before or two days before, did indeed increase in fame. So they did become famous overnight. Um, um, but it's a kind of weird uh, judgment because it's a false fame. It's not that you're correctly judging fame here. You are almost, it's the wrongness of the fame judgment that is interesting. But then women's names, you know, they became famous overnight too, but at a level that was like a quarter of what the, the male names were. And I just thought that could not be. So I did the second study and now, so I, I would have run by the end of all these studies, I would have run 400 subjects, which was again, considered just astonishing in those days that you would do six different experiments with, you know, ends of uh, 50 and so on and, um, and, and have six separate experiments. So I did that. And in the second experiment, I could debrief the subject. So I added on a debriefing. What do you think was the cause of this, you know, this bias after I debriefed them? Do you think the gender of the name mattered and so on? And every single subject, even the ones who could tell me the Jacobi hypothesis, that I think if it was a name I saw a day or two ago, I might be more likely to identify it as famous because I couldn't tell. So they even got close to the implicit memory uh, hypothesis, but not one ever said that they used gender to make their decision. And that was striking to me because when I would say to them, do you think gender played a role because they wouldn't generate it, they would say, of course not. Why, why, why would that? Why would that? Not, not, not me. I mean, they would be almost a little offended that I would suggest that and people were getting to be woke on gender matters uh, in the late 80s. Um, so experiment two showed the same thing. And then I did three, four and five to clean up everything or six. And um, and then I said to Tony, you know, would you do you do you think this is interesting? And he said, oh, yeah, it's very interesting. And um, he gave me really good comments on, on the manuscript. And so I added him as an author uh, on the study and we sent it off and it got published like that. You know, people just loved, loved that result. So something happened to me during the fame study, five studies. I don't know why, but I was able, so even though I didn't expect this result, once it emerged, I was somehow able to make a leap forward by 20 years in my head. And I said something at a conference. I think it was an APS conference. Yeah, it was APS. And I was one of the speakers. Um, and I have a paragraph that I wrote that I read that said, you know, not one subject came up with this. Um, and then I said, if this is the case, if the victim of a bias is unaware that she was biased against, if the perpetrator of the bias is not aware that they were biased, that the implications or then I used words like equality, social justice, uh, are, are really hampered because it's happening without people knowing. And how are we going to deal with this? Because in the law, you have to show that somebody intended to do harm. What are we going to do with unintentional harm? And I just knew 
from that study that this was not one study. This was true of human behavior in some big way. And I was able, I think, by then to just go all out and imagine, oh my God, what would happen if we did fire people and firemen and fire women? So it just became very clear from that one experiment, one set of experiments. And this was not a small thing. And so I, until then, I was searching for a topic. I was thinking I would do research on human memory because that's all I knew to do. But I put all those experiments aside that I was even starting to do with undergraduate students at the time. And I just zoomed in on this. And then I wrote my first grant proposal. And in the grant proposal um, that Tony had a subcontract on, um, we, I remember we said that the biggest constraint is not having a method to measure implicit cognition, not even social cognition. It was just, we don't have really good methods to measure implicit cognition other than by looking at memory. But what if you wanted to look at how decisions are biased in some big way? You know, like, and we gave examples in that 95 paper you mentioned that you bought a lottery ticket. Uh, of course, you should be willing to sell it for not the same price you paid for it but you become attached to it. That grant proposal said, here are the fame studies, but really this is not the best method, that this is limited in what it can do. We need something. And in that grant proposal, we proposed three different possibilities for methods that we would explore for doing newer tests, and the IAT was one of them. Um, and I think we didn't do anything with it because we were still busy just doing, I was using semantic priming as, an, as a method, very simple, you know, flash the word fireman or fireperson or some chairman, chairwoman, chairperson uh, fast and then give people a judgment to make Jane or John, is it a male or female name? And we would show that priming occurred, that a word like chairman would lead you to judge John to be a male name faster than Jane to be a female name. Um, but those studies were frustrating because you would need 800 data points per subject, 100 subjects to get these effects. And I think Tony was always a believer that you have to find the greater efficiency, that you should be able to produce subliminal priming with four subjects, and then you know you've got a real effect. I was always more interested in the content of the, the social implications of it. He had no understanding of that, and he's a good methodologist and a good person to just focus in on the task. So he did it. He, I remember him sending me a task. I sent him a task and I took my first IAT uh, just on, on my computer and would tell you it was the single most transformative day of my life. I mean, no other can compare because by then I was putting in pictures and not pictures. Those days our program didn't take pictures. Uh, it only took words. And so I used words like Tyrone uh, and Jamal to represent the category black. Um, and Aaron and Josh to represent white, not hard to distinguish these names. And I just could not associate black names with good qualities like love, peace, joy. And even though I had been mouthing the words that we all have implicit bias, it's in all of us, of course we're all biased. I don't know, I must have put myself outside the fray because otherwise I wouldn't have been so shocked when I took that test, and I was. I was beside myself. I thought, first of all, I thought the test was all wrong. So I went in and looked at the program and I started to make hypotheses about why, you know, the word on this side, that side, the order of the test. Took it a few more times and I just sighed. Uh, I remember showing it to my, uh, my spouse. I said, take this test. And I remember him saying, you should hide this test. 
don't share it with anybody. And I think he was saying, you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you do this. And he was completely right. But we didn't think that. We were bold and I was young. And we went to, in October, we went to SESP and we took the IAT, no, no, no laptops in those days. Um, we created an IAT on playing cards. We put faces of black and white people on a playing card and good and bad words on the playing cards. And then we would shuffle them and we'd have people sort the cards, black and good on right side, white and bad on the left. And we would do this in conferences on beds in people's rooms. I mean, we would just like say, okay, well, and people who were studying prejudice would like, they would not even complete the last version of the test. They would just throw the cards on the bed and walk away. Some of them, some of them angry saying, this is stupid, right? So, so that was, that was the beginning. And I think we can bring this, uh, to a close by my just saying that the decision to go online was after four years of doing lots of experiments internally. Uh, so 94 was the first IAT that was built that friends and family took. Uh, and then we started to, and I got very busy because I was lucky. I was at Yale. I was getting really amazing students. Um, and. Uh, Christy Lem, Siri Carpenter, Jack Glazer, Buju Dasgupta, later Brian Nosek. Um, and these kids just took, took this method and they did a million studies with it. And so we published Fast and Furious uh, after 98. Um, and um, I, I, I was just saying to somebody, uh, a student of mine yesterday, that there was a time when I knew every IAT study that was ever published. Uh, and that lasted about a year. <laughs> that it grew so fast that I just couldn't keep track of it uh, anymore. And I should tell you about the website, which was really the brainchild of Brian Nosek, who had been a computer scientist and women's studies concentrator. <laughs> and he said, you know, we got to go on the web. We got and you know, Tony and I were not opposed to it. We just thought this is very hard to do. How are we going to do it? The lab, the web was very much undeveloped uh, in 98. And so once we decided we're going to do it, uh, I love this about Tony and me. When we decide we're going to do something, we just don't screw around. <laughs> we will make it happen. Um, so he moved from Seattle to, to New Haven. We got into my lab and we sat there and poor, poor Brian was given a deadline, I think, of September 29, 1998, with one month before it. You got to build um, a prototype or something that will work on, 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 on the internet. Um, I didn't have any money to do this work. I remember going over to the Yale Computer Center and asking the director of the computer center, would, would I, how would I do this? And he said, you would need money to hire somebody to make this possible. And I said, oh, I didn't have any money. And I was leaving and he came running behind me and said, you know, I once sold some internal software that I had made for, and it made $13,000. So I'll give you that. And this is why these things are so important to know that Phil Long gave me his $13,000 that he had made from his own um, um, software uh, and gave it to me so I could buy somebody's time from Yale Computer Center to do this work for us. Then, and every, and, and I went to Yale's general counsel and I said, we're about to put a test online that I think will, will be very important, but it will frighten people and they may come after Yale. Uh, what kinds of language should we have on there? You know, three times we tell people, Please don't proceed if you don't wish to hear something about yourself you may disagree with. 
so I remember even at that time being aware and Bhaskar, who at my husband at the time was in law school and he said, I think you should make sure that you tell people in many, many different ways that this is going to be tough for them. And then we opened the site. I predicted that we'd have 500 completed tests in a, in a year because that would have been an amazing thing at the time. And I was so wrong. We had 45,000 completed tests in the first month. So this is the only thing I know that went viral and then stayed viral for 20, stayed viral for 22 years. We have 30 million people, tests that have been taken now, and you know, you know how, what the rest, so I'll stop there. Oh man, uh, there's so much phenomenal stuff in there and it's such a pleasure to hear all of it. Sorry I talked so long, but I don't get a chance to talk about this aspect of the work ever. So. Oh no, this is the ideal interview right here, where you sit down and uh, say go, and then the person gives you a great hour and 15 minutes of content. Um, well, the only one that came close was the Katha, um, Katha Tippett one, but it's not with Krista, Krista Tippett one, and, um, and obviously that was not not anywhere like this. And uh, it wasn't as focused on the research. Uh, it was more on implications and so on. Um, there are two things that I will just point out that I'm, I care about a lot these days and that I'm working on. I think in one way or another, everybody in lab, postdocs, graduate students, undergrads are all working on questions of change um, from the most minute of procedural, propositional ways of changing the mind versus associative ways of changing the mind. Can we give people many, many, many new associations? Will that work better? Or a sentence like saying, you thought X was bad, but X is actually good. And the remarkable result in Benedict Curdy's work is that that little sentence is much more powerful than many uh, associations we give, telling us that humans have a very different kind of mind that is sensitive to a single propositional statement to change something that they've learned over a long period of time that I would never have thought would, would happen. So that's a great line of work. But Tessa Charlesworth, I would say, uh, takes the prize for doing uh, change work that has been intense and really effective. She's taken thousands of, you know, she's taken about 5 million uh, data points from the web, and she has mapped out whether change is happening to implicit attitudes. I said to her, it's a fool's errand. Uh, we knew we had looked at two-year things and we knew race bias was not changing at all. Obama came, we looked, nothing happened. So I just said to her, but what she's found with the right methods, which is to use these very sophisticated for psychologists, time series analyses, which are run of the mill for economists. And these time series data can also forecast how change is gonna proceed after your last day. So she's looked at data from about 2007 to 2016, and she shows massive change in sexuality attitudes. So gay equals bad was quite strong in 2005 or so, and it's just dropped off. Everybody's changing, grandmothers and grandchildren, liberals and conservatives, although young people and liberals are changing faster, but educated people and less educated people, people on the coast, people who are, everybody's changing. Um, we're not changing as much on others, and one of my great interests is to ask why. What is it about sexuality that has allowed uh, such fast change to happen in a 10-year period? The explicit drop is 50% and the implicit drop is 33%. How can, how can that be, given how rigid this attitude seemed to be? So I have lots of possible answers, and we're pursuing that. 
And then I'm also very interested in the practical way in which implicit bias is being used. As you know, it was a part of a question that was posed in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, you know, what will you do about implicit bias? This thing is no longer in our hands. Uh, it is out there. People will use it. People will make mistakes with it. And one of the mistakes, I think, is that something called implicit bias training, which is billion dollar industry, is going on. Much of that training, I would argue, is snake oil, uh, should not even be done. And then, of course, there's the question that even if you do it right, is it really beneficial? Um, is it going to change anybody in any way? And I have lots of complicated answers to these questions, but maybe in, a, in another time we will talk about it. That was my conversation with Mazarin Banaji. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, honestly, I love these sorts of interviews where all you have to do is get the person started and they just go from there. It's kind of interesting to me how sometimes all it takes is the simple presence of another person to get someone going. Like the only thing I really did here uh, was to provide a space for the interview to happen. So sure, Mazarin could have just sat down and wrote all this out, uh, as I'm sure she has for different parts. But there's something about just having someone in front of you to share it with. And I think that effect is pretty cool and definitely part of the power of, of podcasts and having this, this conversational format. So anyway, the best way to connect with me is through my email newsletter. I don't really use Twitter these days, so you don't have to really bother with that. But my weekly letter is where I really go in depth on a topic that I've been thinking about. And it also includes any links to work that I published that week. So if you want to sign up for it, you can check out my website, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. So as always, uh, thank you for listening, and I will be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.